0: The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: All right, folks, you guys ready? I'm ready. Let's go ahead and start. Glad to see you all. Father, thank you for this time together. I'm really excited to be able to share from Calvin's Institutes one more time tonight. And as we look at Calvin's teaching on prayer and as we look at um, you know, what he did with uh, the Lord's prayer in particular, I pray that you'd stimulate us to more faith-filled and faithful prayer. Pray that we would um, not see prayer as a burden, but as a delight, something that we are uh, drawn and attracted to do, very, very uh, thrilled to do. Pray that You would strengthen our faith. And Lord, be with me as I teach and help us to learn from the words of our brother John Calvin that were written almost five centuries ago. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, so this is our last time studying uh, with Cal- John Calvin's Institutes. Next week we're going to begin and, you know uh, a discussion-style Bible study in the Gospel of John uh, similar to what I do on Thursdays with the men's Bible study. And so I'm excited about that. Um, and uh, that'll be running, you know, straight through for a while. You, John. Gospel of John, yep. That was actually the first book that we studied in men's Bible study many years ago. So. Uh, but tonight we're going to look at John Calvin on the prayer life of the believer. And uh, specifically, if you, if you look at the first page, these are things that he's already covered in the longest chapter in the Institutes, uh, Book 3, Chapter 20 on prayer. Um, clearly, Calvin thought prayer was very, very important, and so he gives a lot of space to it, a lot of attention to it. And the end of it, the last section that we're looking at tonight, is his exposition on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is uh, an incredible section of Scripture. Uh, it's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six, and very familiar uh, to us. It's always been interesting to me because, you know, when I was a Catholic. Um, you know, they, they teach us to pray the rosary and the rosary is uh, basically a, a series of beads that, um, you know, uh, there are 10 beads and then a, 10 smaller beads and a larger bead and then 10 more small beads and another large bead. And so on the small beads, you say the Hail Mary. And so you do 10 of those in a row cranking them out and you can get to be pretty fast trust me i mean brrr, you know that kind of thing and then the big beads were the our father the you know the lord's prayer and so you just work your way around this big necklace is what it is and you get to the cross at the end and you say whatever i don't remember what you said at the cross but and that was it you said the rosary and sometimes that would be like giving you as penance you'd go to a you know confession you confess your sin and you had to do like 10 10 rosaries or something like that so that's an awful lot of kind of praying, but you can crank through it pretty good and then the prayers, I mean, your sin's paid for and that's a good deal. So that's how that worked The whole mercantile approach to forgiveness um, that you, know, you learn in the Catholic system. But uh, the problem that's so ironic, and if, you, if you know, as you start if you become a Christian, you start to read scripture and then you suddenly stumble on the Lord's Prayer in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and say, oh, it's in the Bible after all. Um, and, and it's ironic because as Jesus is talking about prayer, He says, do not keep on heaping up empty phrases like the pagans do, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. And I thought that's exactly what I was doing in praying the Our Father so mechanically. Well, the danger then that comes, there's a lot of dangers, but one of the dangers then is that we would actually despise the Lord's Prayer itself and there's no good reason for that because the Lord's Prayer is a majestic arrangement of teaching that the Lord gives us on prayer. And in this uh, beautiful, very succinct prayer, he lays out all of the major categories of prayer that we would want to keep in mind. And Calvin does a beautiful job unfolding those and explaining them. And that's the journey that's ahead of us tonight. So I don't know if we're going to get there. This outline that I've given you is 14 pages long and that generally is way beyond what I do in one hour. But you can take it home and read. There's a lot of stuff from Calvin in there. I hope it'll be helpful to you. I just generally, you know, urge you to go ahead and get a copy of Calvin's Institutes and just have it as a handbook for theology because it's just so incredibly well written. Uh, anything that's been a bestseller in every generation for half a millennia ought to be well, you know, well worth your time. So uh, continue to look at it. But let's dig in here as Calvin unfolds. Uh, an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. He begins by saying the Lord's Prayer is a necessary help for us. Calvin highlights the benefits of the Lord's Prayer in that it teaches us what we may ask for and frees us from doubts as we approach to God, uh, as we approach God. In Romans 8 it says we do not know what we ought to pray for. So therefore as the Lord helps us in our weakness, he's going to tell us some things we should pray for. And this is a very good example. The Lord's Prayer does tell us things we should pray for, and based on that then it makes sense that we should have a high level of confidence in praying these prayers to him because he told us to pray them. And so, therefore, we can go to him knowing we're fitting into what he said. This is what Calvin wrote. Since he saw that we did not even sufficiently perceive how straitened our poverty was and what it was fair to request and what was profitable for us, he also provided for us for this ignorance of ours and what had been lacking to our capacity, he himself supplied and made sufficient from his own. For he prescribed a form for us in which he set forth as in a table, all that he allows us to seek of him, all that is of benefit to us, all that we need ask from this kindness of his, we receive a great fruition or a fruit of consolation that that we know we are requesting nothing absurd, nothing strange or unseemly, in short, nothing unacceptable to him, since we are asking almost in his own words. And here he discloses our unhappiness in that we cannot even open our mouths before God without danger, unless the spirit instructs us in the right pattern for prayer. Romans eight sixteen. this privilege deserves to be more highly esteemed among us, uh, since the only begotten son of God supplies words to our lips that free our minds from all wavering. So what he's saying is he's teaching us what to pray for. And so it frees us up from doubts. All right, he then divides the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, he says, consists of six petitions. The first three petitions focus on God's glory, which uh, we should delight in no matter what comes our way as a result. The last three focus on care for ourselves and focus our minds on what helps we should be seeking from God. However, says Calvin, a yearning for God's glory should characterize our heart attitude throughout prayer. He writes this, when we ask that God's name be hallowed, because God wills to test us whether we love and worship him freely or for hope of reward, we must then have no consideration for our own benefit, but must set before ourselves his glory to gaze with eyes intent upon this one thing. But our eyes ought, as it were, to be closed and in a sense blinded to this sort of advantage so that they have no regard for it at all. And so that if all hope of our own private good were cut off, still, we should not cease to desire and entreat this hallowing and the other things that pertain to God's glory. In the examples of Moses and Paul, we see that it was not grievous for them to turn their minds and eyes away from themselves and to long for their own destruction with fierce and burning zeal. In order that despite their own loss, they might advance God's glory and his kingdom. So you have Exodus 20 or 32:32. But now he says, this is Moses praying for the Jews. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Basically, what God answers is, I'm going to blot out whoever I choose to blot out. <laughs> and the implication is that it isn't going to be you, Moses. But then Paul gives us the same kind of idea in Romans 9, 3 and 4. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So there he's saying, even if it cost me my own soul, I would love to see these people saved. So, you know, I think this is a concept here that we can appreciate what Calvin's saying here, but, you know, you can go too far as well. Because, you know, our own desires and delights are wrapped up in God. The essence of our salvation is to find our highest delight and pleasure and and happiness in God, not our own destruction in God. Um, and, And yet there are these two verses here that give us that indication. Paul, however, does guard it with a kind of a careful grammatical construction. For I could wish that I were cut off from Christ. So if it were even possible, and as I said, Moses was immediately corrected into thinking that his name would be blotted out from God's book. So on the other hand, when we ask to be given our daily bread, even though we desire what is to our benefit, here we ought especially to seek God's glory so as not to ask it unless it redound to his glory. So anyway, he's just dealing with the idea here that God's glory is above all things. Yes, Susan. Right. Yeah, I mean... a little excessive. Yeah, but I think what you have to do is say he's talking about salvation here. He's talking about unless the Spirit comes and brings us out of our deadness and transgressions and sins and we're instructed by the Spirit in the gospel, we wouldn't know what to say to Him. And so we would be in great danger. Therefore, our very prayers themselves would be sins. And you'd be right in the middle of sinning and God's wrath would come down. But I'm speaking about the lost, about unregenerate people. There's an awful lot of unregenerate praying that goes on in this world. It's a praying world. Um, But God bears with their prayers and doesn't pour out His wrath on them just out of His patience. Uh, You can read about all that in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But the bottom line is that at any moment, God's wrath could break out. But we, however, are in the category of those who have graciously been instructed by the Spirit on how to pray. We've been brought into the into the kingdom that way. So that's a good, a good... But if you're looking at that just in terms of, you know, as a Christian, then it might seem extreme. I understand what you're saying. All right, so now he begins to pick it apart and to talk about it. Let's start with the very first phrase, our Father in heaven. Um, initial comments then, the address of God as Father immediately should cause us to think of Christ and our adoption in him. In other words, you can't think of God as Father without thinking of Christ as your brother or Christ as your redeemer, Christ as the the one whose blood was shed so that you could be a child of God. Calvin writes this, For in calling God Father, we put forward the name Christ. With what confidence would anyone address God as Father? Who would break forth into such rashness as to claim for himself the honor of a son of God unless we had been adopted as children of grace in Christ? He, while he uh, is the true son, has of himself been given us as a brother that what he has of his own by nature may become ours by benefit of adoption if we embrace this great blessing with sure faith accordingly john says that power has been given to those who believe in the name of the only begotten son of god that they too may become children of god john 112 so in other words whenever you say our father at the beginning of the lord's prayer You you can't do it without thinking about Jesus. That's what he's saying. It's because of Christ and His blood that we have this exalted privilege of being children of God. The name Father should also give us a strong sense of confidence in approaching God. Calvin writes, Therefore, God both calls Himself our Father and would have us so address Him. By the great sweetness of this name, He frees us from all distrust, since no greater feeling of love can be found elsewhere than in the Father. Therefore, He could not attest his own boundless love toward us with any surer proof than the fact that we are called children of God. 1 John 3.1 But just as he surpasses all men in goodness and mercy, so is his love greater and more excellent than all our parents' love. Do you see, by the way, just the, the balance of Calvin's statement? Because immediately thoughts pop in your mind. It's like, well, my father wasn't so great, you might think. Or, you know, maybe my father was fine, but I know many fathers that are terrible. Well, Calvin's saying, forget all that. Let's go to the best human father in the world. God is a much better father than him. It's just an analogy, an image that God has chosen to give us. The idea of God as father uh, helps us is what he's saying. So he surpasses all men in goodness and mercy. So is his love greater and more excellent than all our parents love. Hence, though, all earthly fathers should divest themselves of all feeling of fatherhood and forsake their children. He would never fail us since he cannot deny himself. So, you know, even if every father in the world should turn their back on their own children and no longer care for them and be harsh toward them, etc., God would never do that because he's just greater. His love for us is greater. That's really, by the way, that language is coming from the Psalms. Though my father and mother forsake me, yet you will not. Psalm 27, verse 10. The name Father then should also teach us to seek all blessings from him and from no other, because to go somewhere else for help would be to dishonor him as a bad father. Calvin writes, but a son cannot give himself over to the safekeeping of a stranger and an alien without at the same time complaining either of his father's cruelty or want. Thus, if we are his sons, we cannot seek help anywhere else than from him without reproaching him for poverty or want of means or cruelty or excessive rigor. So Let me give you an illustration. Um, let's say you saw a situation in which a five or six year old child saw his father and immediately cowered and ran into the arms of a a stranger or another person. Isn't that child saying something about the nature of that relationship? I mean, what do you think when you see that happen? Abuse or, or neglect or some, you know, something's happened there. And so when we go to anyone but the father, aren't we basically charging God with that kind of thing that he can't help us or doesn't want to help us or he's been abusive toward us or he's really cruel or severe? And what a great dishonor that is. So the, the idea here, by the way, is profound and, and very strong. Every blessing in our lives, we should seek from God's hand directly, consciously. That will keep you from sinning. Like think about all of those good blessings that God gives us that could become addictive. Like the honey of life, you know, honey sweet, but eat just a little or you'll vomit, those kind of things. Learn to seek all of, God, all of your blessings directly from God's hand in prayer then you won't do them excessively. you know. See God as the one who's handing out to you your provision for the day. Both your daily bread and maybe a little bit of your daily honey too. And whatever else is coming from God's hand and then you'll be kept from immoderate desires, you see. Because you're seeking it from God's hand. It'll keep you from being an idolater. It's a relational thing. Therefore, you can enjoy the good blessings of life right from His hand. It's when we seek them from some seek those blessings from some other source that they become idols at that point. We're turning away from God to this pleasure, whatever it is, and seeking happiness in it, but not from God. Yes? Why do you
2: think he gives me too much sometimes? I don't, you know, when my children were little, I didn't give them 17 desserts or 17 cookies or, you know, or let them stay up until 3 a.m. So why does he give me too much?
1: Oh, there's so many answers I could give to that. Let me give you the two best answers that are popping up in my head. One is, I'm not talking anymore about you, Susan, so I can okay, say this. I all right, now I'm talking about more <laughs> theoretical situations. It could be that he hasn't given me that thing, that I greedily went and took it. It really should have stayed on the shelf at the supermarket. It was for somebody else. All right, so I have to, you know, it's a greed issue that I've taken more than really was mine then in some cases he does increase your, your income, let's say. You get a, a bigger paycheck, but Randy Alcorn said, could it be that he gives it to you not to increase your standard of living, but your standard of giving so that you become a bigger diameter pipe at that point so that the blessings flow through you to someone else? So those, that's a good question and it's something we all struggle with. But a third answer that I could give is that God also wants to teach us self-control so that we can learn to say no to ourselves, to deny ourselves. And, you know, denial of self involves saying no to blessings, comfort, ease, other things, and then serving Him. So all of that, I think, is to give us something to give up, something to sacrifice, so that we are not going to live that kind of life, though we could, so that we can live a life of service to Him. That's my best crack at that question. It's a good question, though. struggle with that myself. All right, so he's talking here about uh, Father, our Father. Uh, this is a form of address, therefore, that should encourage us. Our constant consciousness of sins tends to make us feel ashamed as we approach God in prayer. Okay, But a normal, loving father is moved deeply by a sinful son's honest and tearful pleading for forgiveness. Isn't that true? I mean, if you have a normal, healthy father, and here's a child, and the father's convinced, the child's genuinely sorry for what they did. There may still be disciplines and all that, but he's moved by it. And that's now we kick into the how much more language. How much more? If you, you, though you are evil, know how to be forgiving to your sinful children, then how much more does God know how to be forgiving to us? That's the approach he's taking here. And the parable of the prodigal son is ample proof of this warm welcome to repentant sinners. He depicts, says Calvin, and represents for us in a parable this abundance of fatherly compassion. A son had estranged himself from his father, had dissolutely wasted his substance, had grievously offended against him in every way. But the father embraces him with open arms and does not wait for him to ask pardon, but anticipates him, recognizes him returning afar off, willingly runs to meet him, comforts him, receives him into favor. For in setting forth this example of great compassion to be seen in man, he willed to teach us how much more abundantly we ought to expect it of him. For he is not only a father, but by far the best and kindest of all fathers, provided we still cast ourselves upon his mercy, although we are ungrateful, rebellious and habitually disobedient children. And to strengthen our assurance that he is this sort of father to us, if we are Christians, then he willed that we should call him not only father, but explicitly our father. By the way, we're only into the first two words of the Lord's Prayer, so what chance that we're going to finish the whole thing. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us helps us understand God as our Father. Calvin writes, But because of the narrowness of our hearts, because the narrowness of our hearts cannot comprehend God's boundless favor, not only is Christ the pledge and guarantee of our adoption, but He gives the Spirit as witness to us of the same adoption, through whom with free and full voice we may cry, Abba, Father, as it teaches in Galatians 4 and Romans 8. Therefore, whenever any hesitation shall hinder us, let us remember to ask Him to correct our fearfulness and to set before us that spirit that He may guide us to pray boldly. Okay? So it's a really Trinitarian experience here. Our Father does make us think of Jesus who paid the price that we might be a son of God as He is. And then the Spirit... Within us cries out, Abba, Father. So it's a Trinitarian experience there. Uh, This is also a form of address that sets us in the fellowship with the brethren as well. Okay, here he's going to focus on the word our, right? Not merely my Father, but our Father. There's nothing wrong with you saying my Father. Jesus said my Father in Gethsemane. We can say my Father, but the Lord's Prayer begins our Calvin writes, however, we are not so instructed that each one of us should individually call him his father, but rather that all of us in common should call him our father. From this fact, we are warned how great a feeling of brotherly love ought to be among us. Since by the same right of mercy and free liberality, we are equally children of such a father. For if one father is common to us all and every good thing that can fall to our lot comes from him, there ought not to be anything separate among us that we are not prepared gladly and wholeheartedly to share with one another as far as occasion requires. We ought to be drawn with a special affection to those above others of the household of faith, whom the apostle has particularly commended us to look after everything, Galatians 6.10. To sum up, all prayers ought to be such as, as to look to that community which our Lord has established in his kingdom and his household. So here he's getting somewhat at the horizontal aspect of the of the Lord's Prayer so that as you come saying, Our Father, you're aware that you're there with the family. And so you should be thinking about others and praying uh, for the needs of others, etc. I think it's going to come in when you have that same kind of plural language later when it says, Give us this day our daily bread. So you're mindful of the fact that there are other people whose daily bread you're concerned about, not just your own. So there's a collective experience. He then takes a minute to compare prayer and almsgiving. He says, it's like our almsgiving in that uh, the priority is going to be to the household of faith. Again, he's got in mind Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as you have opportunity, let's do good to everybody, but especially those who belong to the household of faith. And so it is with our prayers. We're going to pray for everybody, but especially for the believers. We're going to pray especially for the believers um, yet prayer, he says, is not like almsgiving because you kind of have to be face to face with the person you're giving alms to. And you kind of have to at least know something of their situation, but you can pray for a total stranger who you've never met or never will. You can pray for Kings and those in authority that, that you might live a certain kind of life, etc. So you can pray for people that are halfway around the world that you'd never even met. So, all right. So our father, then he gives us this phrase in heaven. The addition of this phrase, Calvin says, does not enclose God in some kind of boundary like a prison. You're not putting God in a heaven box because it says in 1 Kings 8 and verse 27, heaven, even the highest heavens cannot contain him. There is no container for God. God can't be contained. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, Calvin saying right away on the in heaven thing, please don't think you're putting him in a box. Uh, there is no such box. But rather, this phrase helps us exalt God to the highest place in our own estimation. Really, this is all about us. This is human language to help us understand how great God is. Consequently, Calvin says, it has been signified to us by heaven, for we can behold nothing <coughs> excuse me more sublime or majestic than this. While therefore, wherever our senses comprehend anything, they commonly attach it to that place. God is set beyond all place so that when we would seek him, we must rise above all perception of body and soul. Secondly, by this expression, he is lifted above all chance of either corruption or change. Finally, uh, heaven, the words uh, in heaven, signifies that he embraces and holds together the entire universe and controls it by his might. Therefore, it is as uh, as if he had been said, To be of infinite greatness or loftiness or incomprehensible essence of boundless might and of everlasting immortality. Well, I think that's all true. I think that's all helpful. So, but then do you see what's happening here in the first few words? We have this incredible intimacy with the word father and this incredible majesty with the word heaven. And so it's good for us as we come to God in prayer to have a sense of both of those things, right? A sense of the intimacy we have with God and a sense of the infinite majesty of his personhood. And so this, this phrase, in heaven, helps us with that. It also helps us to understand the greatness of God's sovereign power as we pray. It's, isn't it good to know in prayer you've come to the right place? I mean, you're not, you know, the buck stops here. I mean, the ultimate buck stops here with God. And he's never going to say, gee, you know, I don't really look after that. That's something that, uh, you know, I've delegated to the, such and such an angel or, you know, whatever. Now, the fact of the matter is you've always come to the right place when you come to God. He can do anything. So Calvin writes, but, but while we hear this, our thought must be raised higher when God is spoken of, lest we dream anything uh, earthly or physical about him, lest we measure him by our small measure or conform his will to our emotions. At the same time, our confidence in him must be aroused since we understand that heaven and earth are ruled by his providence and power. So in other words, it helps you to remember how great God is. God cannot be transformed, changed, influenced. You can't teach God anything. All of those transcendent attributes, it's good to keep those in mind and heaven gives those to us. Yeah, go ahead.
2: You didn't make an editorial comment on the quote after number three on page five, so I guess I will. Okay. Um, however, we are not so instructed that each one of us should individually call him his father. I guess I would question that. Um, in John chapter 17, uh, verse 23... Um, Jesus says, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Sure. I guess I'm believing personally that mm-hmm. God, the Father, does love me like he loved his son Jesus. And Jesus mm-hmm. called God his Father. I do think his sure. point, Calvin's point, is excellent. I mean, mm-hmm. it does. We can all, I personally can always uh, be reminded, truthfully reminded that
1: I'm sure. in a family. Yeah, I think he would assent to what you said. I think the quote, maybe if we can be so bold as to help Calvin here a bit, us great writers and thinkers that we are, let's just stick in the word here after the word instructed. However, we are not so instructed here that each one of us should individually. So that's all. So he's just letting the word our have its weight there. But I think in other places, and I did make that one comment that Jesus calls God his father. says, you know, my father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. So I think it's I think Calvin would assent to that. He is individually our Father and He is collectively our Father. But what he's trying to do there is just explain why the word our was chosen. Why does he use the word our Father? Okay. Because you could be you could pray our Father completely alone. You can go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who's unseen and uh, pray our father. So you're still aware of uh, people that aren't in the room with you there, but they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, well that's the introduction. Now The petitions, first petition, may your name be hallowed or hallowed be your name. Uh, It is shameful for us, Calvin begins, as a human race, uh, even to have to pray this. There is nothing more shameful than that God's glory has been in some sense obscured, (coughs) excuse me, by our idolatry and ignorance. And so this this is a problem. Calvin starts rather negatively here. I mean, just how sinful must we be that we have to even pray this? that God's name isn't honored as it should be. You know, that's a a shameful thing. Um, But then he goes on from there. What are we asking in this petition? Well, we should wish God to have the honor he deserves. Men should never speak or think of him without the highest reverence. To this it is opposed, sorry, to this is opposed the profanity that has always been too common and even today is abroad in the world. Hence the need of this petition, which ought to have been superfluous if even a little godliness existed among us. But if holiness is associated with God's name, where separated from all other names, it breathes pure glory. Here we are bidden to request not only that God vindicate his sacred name of all contempt and dishonor, but also that he subdue the whole race of mankind to reverence for it. This is really brilliant writing. And what he's doing is he's taking this This expression, may your name be hallowed and and residing it in the sinful hearts of people, because that's really what's going on here. God has no problem with his own name. He knows how exalted his own name is. It says in Isaiah that he has said above all things, his name and his word. God isn't the problem. And he's Calvin's imagining here that angels aren't the problem either. They esteem God's name. All right. We are the problem. And so, therefore, this is a prayer that God would conquer our rebellious hearts and that we would be subdued to the glory of God, that we would see the greatness of God. Really, it's very much a missionary prayer that people would turn from idols, idolatry, and for undervaluing God and underestimating God and and all of that, that we would actually honor and worship Him. That's what He's doing here. So it's, it's a powerful thing. And also, doesn't it show the sovereignty of God over human hearts? that God is being asked to change rebellious hearts and make them honor and esteem Him? Yes, God is sovereign over rebellious, cold hearts, and He's able to do that, to just transform a cold, stony heart and give it a heart of flesh. And so basically the prayer here is, Oh, God, do that. That's a great work. It's kind of the work, isn't it? Isn't that the work of redemptive history? Isn't it reasonable that that should be the first prayer? Our Father in heaven, may Your name be held in honor and esteem by human beings. That's really what's going on here. All right. God reveals His glory both in His works and His Word, but only as Scripture takes its proper place in our hearts will this petition be answered. So here Calvin's reaching aside to the instrumentality. How then are people going to honor or hallow God's name? And his answer is it's not going to be primarily through the works of God, but it's going to be through the Scripture, and especially the Gospel. As the Gospel has its way with us, as the Gospel spreads through the earth, and people believe it, then God's name is going to be hallowed. So he's talking about how it is that God will answer this prayer. And he's going to answer it by spreading the gospel. Alright? This petition is directed also to this end. That all impiety, that's unbelief and, un, you know, un, uh, impiety, false religion, etc., which has besmirched this holy name may perish, and be wiped out. And that all detractions and mockeries which dim this hallowing or diminish it may be banished. And that in silencing all sacrileges, God may shine forth more and more in his majesty. By the way, I've edited a lot of what Calvin said. That, you know, however long this outline is, it's much longer in the Institutes. But you should still read it. Um, I summarize that section on the word and how it's only by the prop- propagation of the word that the, uh, God's name is going to be honored. All right. The second petition. May your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. In some sense, Calvin says this is a thematic repetition of the first request: "Hallowed be your name." May your kingdom come are intimately related, uh, as if we could say the coming of God's kingdom is the hallowing of His name. And I think that's actually true. If that's what's happening, human hearts are being turned from stone to flesh; they're being held that now that heart holds God in honor and esteems and honors. Well, that, the kingdom's come to that individual. So either you use it this way, the, the kingdom has come to this person or that person has entered the kingdom, but the language is the same, is the same thing. Remember how Jesus said the tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. And so there is an entering of the kingdom of heaven and that happens when the heart of a tax collector or prostitute now honors and esteems God through the gospel, they've entered the kingdom. Or conversely, the kingdom has come to them. That's what he's saying. All right, so what is God's kingdom? Well, God reigns where men, both by denial of themselves and by contempt of the world and of heavenly, uh, sorry, earthly life, pledge themselves to his righteousness in order to aspire to a heavenly life. That's where God reigns, okay? Thus, there are two parts to this kingdom. First, that God, by the power of his spirit, correct all the desires of the flesh by which squadrons war against him. And second, that he shape all our thoughts in obedience to his rule, okay? Okay. So this is what happens in the heart of a believer. Now, the kingdom advances in two ways, says Calvin, when men gladly come under the scepter of God's word. And secondly, when God uses his sovereign power to crush opposition. Both of these humble human pride. Both of them do. All right. And, you know, you say, well, isn't it really just more the first? No, it's both. Read about it in the book of Revelation. (laughs) You know, when Jesus comes, that's the kingdom coming, isn't it? I mean, that's definitely the kingdom coming. I don't know what you call the second coming of Christ, but I think it's his kingdom coming. And what's arrayed at that point is all of Antichrist and all of his forces shaking their fist at God and at Christ. And what does he do to them? We'll read about it in Revelation 19. But that's the kingdom coming. And so what Calvin's saying is that that kind of stuff's going on way before the second coming of Christ, right? Isn't it true? God is both converting some people and killing others. All right? He's converting some people and he's removing others. He's shutting them down. And so it says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven all the time, every day. God expresses his wrath every day. He just doesn't send out an angel and say, hear ye, hear ye, this is an expression of God's wrath. But it's happening. You know, when unbelievers die and they are removed, that is an expression of God's wrath. And that's what's happening. It's really a foretaste of the judgment that's coming. So now, because uh, the word of God is like a royal scepter, we are bidden here to entreat him to bring all men's minds and hearts into voluntary obedience to it. That's better by far, don't you think? I mean, that's better by far. We are yearning for conversions. All right, this happens uh, when he manifests the working of his word through the secret inspiration of his spirit in order that it may stand forth in the degree of honor that it deserves. Afterward, we should descend to the impious who stubbornly and with desperate madness resist his authority. Therefore, God sets up his kingdom by humbling the whole world, but in different ways. For he tames the wantonness of some and breaks the untamable pride of others. Either way. By the way, I tried to find each side of that another time in um, Jesus' enigmatic statement. The stone the builders rejected has become a capstone. You know, that whole thing. He says, he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but the one on whom it falls will be crushed. Maybe that's what it means. I don't know whether I'd rather be broken to pieces or crushed. They both sound pretty bad. All right. Um, either way, I mean, I don't know that that'll work there. But this is a true observation that, cr- that God is doing both of these things in the world. He is bringing people sweetly into his kingdom to believe in him. And he's also removing others that won't believe in him. right. This is also a prayer for daily progress, really a missionary prayer. We must daily desire that God gather churches unto himself from all parts of the earth, that he spread and increase them in number, that he adorn them with gifts, that he establish a lawful order among them. On the other hand, that he cast down all enemies of pure teaching and religion, that he scatter their councils and crush their efforts. By the way, look at the language he uses here. This is back in the 16th century, and they're talking about, he's talking about church planting. And church growth here, you know, it's it's really quite remarkable. It's like, oh, you know, we had to wait for the, you know, 21st century church planning movement to learn this stuff. No, it's been around, been around for a while. So we must daily desire that God gather churches unto himself from all parts of the earth and that he spread and increase them in number. That's a missionary endeavor right there. Despite the obvious setbacks the church endures, this prayer is never in vain, but full consummation of it awaits the second coming of Christ. Calvin writes, from this... It appears that zeal for daily progress is not enjoined upon us in vain for it never goes so well with human affairs that the filthiness of vices is shaken and washed away and full integrity flowers and grows. So please don't be looking for utopia or paradise on earth. It's not going to go like that, but it's fullness is delayed to the final coming of Christ when, as Paul teaches, God will be all in all. So in other words, we have an eschatological hope in this when we're saying your kingdom come. We're not expecting God's kingdom here on earth. I think some movements in church history haven't really understood that or believed it. There have been perfectionistic, utopian Christian movements that have sought to bring in God's kingdom here on earth. And we're not to be looking for that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
2: Um, can you go back to just, uh, the, part about, um, C, the Yeah. Yeah. Um, a little while ago, how uh, the, you know, the aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right. Well, that's definitely not true for unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the aim of man. It's the aim of the elect man. But the, but can we say, I mean, does it mean that the aim of man is to glorify God? So we'll it might refer to that two-edged kind of sword like you're talking about that... The unbeliever will glorify God in his destruction. Right. Right. The regenerate will glorify him in mercy.
1: That's absolutely true. That's Romans 9. All all 10, both vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, both exist for the glory of God. And it's also true that the vessels of wrath do not delight in God. They don't enjoy him forever. That is true. So thank you. All right, page 8. What effect this petition should have on our hearts? When you pray, our kingdom come, what should it do to your heart? Okay, well, this prayer ought to draw us back from worldly corruptions, which so separate us from God that his kingdom does not thrive within us. At the same time, it ought to kindle zeal for mortification of the flesh. Finally, it ought to instruct us in bearing the cross. For it is in this way that God wills to spread his kingdom. So when you you pray that prayer, those things should happen to you. And other things besides, there's always more to say. Um, How does the kingdom spread? Calvin writes, but we should not take it ill that the outward man is in decay, provided the inner man is being renewed, 2 Corinthians 4:16. For this is the condition of God's kingdom, that while we submit to his righteousness, he makes us sharers in his glory. This comes to pass when, with ever-increasing splendor, he displays his light and truth, by which the darkness and falsehoods of Satan's kingdom vanish, are extinguished, and pass away. Meanwhile, he, pro- he protects his own, guides them by the help of his spirit into uprightness, and strengthens them to perseverance. But he overthrows the wicked conspiracies of enemies, unravels their stratagems and deceits, opposes their malice, represses their obstinacy until at last he slays Antichrist with the spirit of his mouth and destroys all ungodliness with the brightness of his coming. So you see vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath right there to the one. He does this and the other. He does that. So to us, I mean, that's a beautiful list of things he's doing for you. I mean, read that over again with ever increasing splendor or glory. He displays his light and truth in your life. Uh, by which the darkness and falsehoods of Satan's kingdom vanish from your mind and your heart and your lifestyle, right? Little by little are extinguished and pass away. Meanwhile, he protects you, right? From danger. He guides you by the help of his spirit into uprightness. That just sounds like Psalm 23 to me and strengthens you to perseverance. So you don't give up. He's doing all of that for you. Isn't that beautiful? And meanwhile, he's doing this for the others. All right. The third petition may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's Calvin going to say? Well, it's kind of the same thing again, isn't it? It's about the same thing. It's it's almost by way of saying that's what it means to have God's kingdom come. It means to have his will done on earth as it is in heaven. It's just a greater and greater clarification. May your name be hallowed. That is, may your kingdom come. That is, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's almost like three petitions for about the same progress of God's glory in the world. All right? May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a distinction that Calvin makes between the secret will of God and the revealed, commanded will of God. Okay, so sometimes people make distinctions between the will of decree and the will of command. The will of decree is the secret will of God, and it's going to happen, and it doesn't matter what you think about it. You may be Satan or the devil, or you may be you know it doesn't matter. God's going to do it. Yes, Jack. Go ahead. Okay,
2: back up there. Uh, says until the last days, until until at last he slays. Antichrist, Antichrist
1: the, splendor of his coming.
2: spirit of his mouth or
1: sword of his mouth? Or sword of his mouth. Uh, with the uh, brightness of his coming. spirit of his mouth. With the spirit of his mouth, Calvin writes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Would, you know, when,
0: when we read it in Revelation, it's like he just speaks it. You know,
1: well, in Revelation it says he has a sword coming out of his mouth right. with which to slay the nations. Yeah. With uh, In Second Thessalonians it says the breath of his mouth. Calvin, I think, goes with breath-spirit as interchangeable at that point because the word in Hebrew, ruach, also can be translated spirit. Frankly, I don't think any sword's coming out of Jesus' mouth. I think Jesus gives the word and the spirit makes it happen, so I think you get sword, breath, spirit, all at the it's same like time. Sword, I mean, when he speaks that's it, it's I very know. effective, yes. <laughs> when he says, be dead, you're dead. All right, yeah, I think you all know that, I mean, when he does that, so good question. Okay, um... All right, where are we uh, be? B. Okay, yeah, distinction between God's secret will. All right, and, and what we're talking about here with your will be done on earth as in heaven is his commanded will, okay? The secret will is going to happen anyway. I mean, that's, I mean God is sovereign. The, 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 the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof already. But we're talking the language of God's kingdom. We're talking about something else other than that. I mean, God's already king of all, over all the earth, but he's trying to do something here. He's trying to save people. And so the advance of the kingdom is a gradual progress of the gospel is what it is. And so therefore, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven has to do with our hearing and understanding and obeying what God's told us to do. Not so much that we would do what he has decreed that we do, like the day of our birth or the day of our death and all that. It's talking about the commands of God. And so this would definitely be in in line of what we call the third use of the law, that, that we would live God's law. That we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what He's told us to do, and that we would actually do it as as it's done up in heaven. So Calvin writes, "But here God's other will is to be noted, namely that to which voluntary obedience corresponds, and for that reason heaven is by name compared to earth, for the angels, as is said in the psalm, willingly obey God and are intent upon carrying out His commands." We are therefore bidden to desire that just as in heaven, nothing is done apart from God's good pleasure. And the angels dwell together in all peace and uprightness. The earth be in like manner subject to such a rule. (coughs) Excuse me. With all arrogance and wickedness brought to an end. I think it's really helpful for us to read the book of Revelation and the seeming cheerfulness with which the angels do everything they're told to do. I mean, they don't seem to be troubled by anything. And troubled, nothing. They're celebrating everything God tells them to do. Righteous you are, O oh Lord. For Thank you for giving us a chance to change the water into blood so they can all die. It's what they deserve. I mean, you gave them uh, the, the, the martyrs, uh, they poured out their blood, so you gave them blood to drink as they deserve. They're just thinking of new ways to praise God for these wrathful things that God's doing on the earth. Do the angels ever seem the least bit troubled by anything God does? The answer is absolutely not. Never. The troubled angels, they left a while ago, friends. They have another name, <laughs> okay? But the the holy angels, the elect angels, so to speak, they are delighting all the time in what God... And so Calvin's saying that's how God's will is done in in, in uh, heaven. And so whenever we're told to do something, we just are glad to do it because God's will is so, is so right and so perfect. This prayer, says Calvin, causes us to renounce the desires of the flesh and learn by the Holy Spirit to desire only what God wills. All right, I'm going to skip this long quote. You read it. um, It's good, good quote. All good quotes. But uh, if we do this one, we won't do some one at the end, which is good as well. So let's keep going. Summary of first three petitions. Here, then, are the first three sections of the prayer. In making these requests, we are to keep God's glory alone before our eyes while leaving ourselves out of consideration and not looking to any advantage for ourselves. For such advantage, even though it amply accrues from such a prayer, must not be sought by us here. But even though all these things must nonetheless come to pass in their time without any thought or desire or petition of ours, still we ought to desire and request them. That's a very strong statement. In other words, God's going to do this whether you pray for it or not. (laughs) But isn't it a good thing to pray for the very thing God's going to do? And isn't isn't it a good thing and a very healthy thing for you and I to want, and I mean deeply want, the very thing He's going to do? Because he's going to do it anyway. And if you don't deeply want it, you're in trouble because <laughs> that's the very thing that's going to happen. So I think the essence of our salvation is start to delight in what God is doing. And this Lord's Prayer helps us do that. We're saying, oh God, I want these things to happen. I know they're going to happen, but I want them to happen. I want you know, your name to be hallowed and I want your your kingdom to come and I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, Let's keep going. The fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, says Calvin, we are allowed to, and this is his word, descend to the level of our own needs. So we've been up in the heavenly realms thinking of how God's will is done in heaven and God is exalted above the heavens. He's our father in heaven. Now we come down to our bellies. You know, <laughs> That's literally where we go right to the stomach. All right. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, in doing so, however, says Calvin, we do not forsake God's concern for God, or, or concern for God's glory. For Paul tells us that we should eat and drink and do everything for the glory of God. Quote, God specifically claims the first three petitions and draws us wholly to himself to prove our piety in this way. Then he allows us to look after our own interests. Yet under this limitation that we seek nothing for ourselves without the intention that whatever benefits he confers upon us may show forth his glory, for nothing's more fitting that we should live and die to him. By the way, this two-part feel that Calvin's really you know, drawing in stark contrast, first, let's give God what he's asking for, then we descend to our stomachs, is very much like the parable in Luke 17, 7-10. Suppose one of you had a servant out in the field plowing, doing something. When he came back in, would he say, tell you what, why don't you sit down, I'm going to feed you dinner. Would he not rather say, you get yourself ready, you first wait on me, And then after that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, after you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. In other words, God in effect is saying, Jesus is saying through that parable, first look after the things of God and then let him take care of your meal, which he says openly later in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. When he's openly talking about food and clothing, right? Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink. Your body, what you'll wear. Don't worry about these things. But seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. And so we have that same order in the Lord's prayer as well, as we descend down to our earthly needs. Calvin writes uh, that, um, oh, sorry, we've already done that. Uh, with what this petition uh, focuses on is the preservation of our bodies. Give us this day our daily bread. By the way, the logic of Romans, uh, sorry, of Matthew six is that the one who gave you the cyclically empty stomach knows that you need food. I mean, he hasn't forgotten that. He designed it that way to keep you connected to him, to keep you coming back to him for your daily bread. And so he knows that you need this. And, and your life is more important than food and your body more important than clothes. So that's you need to come back to him. He knows that. Calvin writes this, but by this petition, we ask of God all things in general that our bodies have need to use under the elements of this world, Galatians 4, 3, not only for food and clothing, but also for everything God perceives to be beneficial to us, that we may eat our daily bread in peace briefly by this, we give ourselves over to his care and entrust ourselves to his providence that he may feed, nourish and preserve us. For our most gracious father does not disdain to take even our bodies under his safekeeping and guardianship in order to exercise our faith in these small matters while we exer- uh, sorry, while we expect everything from heaven, even to a crumb of bread and a drop of water. So he's, he's saying bread is just a symbol for everything you need to stay alive. And what you're doing in prayer is you're going to God and saying, give me what I need to stay alive. You know, please provide this for me. Even here, however, we should not be like the pagans who clearly show more concern for the body than for the soul. This prayer teaches us not to be worried about our lives, what we shall eat or drink, or about our bodies, what we shall wear. Instead, we are trained by this to ask God for our bodily needs and to leave it to him to provide. By the way, that's the clearest example of this is Jesus fasting in the desert, right? And the devil comes and tempts him and says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. When Jesus gives that answer, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, in effect, if you really look at it, if you, if you read the, the Deuteronomy statement, Deuteronomy 8, in context, there God says, he humbled you and caused you to hunger, feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on my word. And what is the word? It's not so much the Bible there, like memorizing scripture and all that. It's God's word goes forth like a king to meet a need. You see, he sends forth his word and the ground warms up and spring comes and all that. God sends his word like in Psalm 103 and stuff happens. So it's the kingly word. Let them eat. You see what I'm saying? So we primarily eat God's word and the mean, the means of it is the bread we're putting in our mouth. You see what I'm saying? I mean, God God could actually fill your stomach with nothing and you wouldn't feel hungry at all and you'd have all the nutrients you needed to live. He could literally just say, be filled and there'd be nothing in your stomach, but you wouldn't feel hungry and all your cells would have all the nourishment they needed to stay alive as though you'd had a great meal. But God uses bread to achieve the end. The real deal then, the real issue is God's word. It's what has he decreed. And what Jesus was saying in in the desert is, he hasn't willed that I eat yet. He hasn't told me to eat yet. And I'm not going to eat until he tells me to eat. That's an incredibly deep, profound statement, isn't it? He says, I will not even put anything in my mouth until God tells me it's time to eat. And he hasn't told me yet. It's been 40 days. And he knows what I need to stay alive. And I didn't come here to die of starvation in the desert. At the right time, he will feed me, but it hasn't come yet. So that's Jesus waiting, waiting, waiting on his father, waiting on his father to feed him. And then at the right time, his father sent the word and Jesus was cared for. He sent angels, I think, just like Elijah. And um, maybe brought him a a cake and a jar of water. But the fact is he was waiting on Jesus. Isn't that incredible when you think about it? And, And oh, that I would be able to develop that kind of waiting on God for things and not being presumptuous and going and grabbing something that God hasn't given me yet. So that's what Calvin's getting at here with this prayer. All right. Now, why does this petition precede the one on forgiveness of sins, says Calvin? Interesting. You know, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. That's odd. (laughs) I mean, Jesus reverses the order when the paralyzed man comes. Remember the the friends that let, let him down through the roof? Remember that? And Jesus looks down and the first thing he says is, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven which when I preached, I said, there's Jesus' priority structure, right? Priority structure is forgiveness first, and then the healing next, all right? But in the Lord's Prayer, he reverses it. He gives us a good meal first, and then we find out that our sins need to be forgiven. So let's see what Calvin says. Maybe you have an answer to that one. Well, think about it yourself. Let's see what Calvin says. Now, even though forgiveness of sins is far more important than bodily nourishment, Christ placed the inferior thing first, why? That he might bring us gradually to the two remaining petitions which properly belong to the heavenly life. In this he has taken account of our slowness. So, in effect, what he's saying is, you know, if some guy's starving and you want to teach him on, about forgiveness, you know, you might want to give him a meal first and then sit down and talk about the subtleties of what his soul needs. Yes?
0: is soup, and soul.
1: Okay. Well, that's fine. I think that, that's, that's, that's great. So, you know, I, I think if we could handle it, he would speak to us first about our souls. But in effect, he's saying because of just the way we're put together, maybe you need a good meal first. But then I'm going to talk to you about what you really need and what you really need is forgiveness. Because what would it profit a, a, anyone to gain a good meal and lose their soul? And if you are not forgiven, your soul is lost. And so, therefore, we have to have forgiveness more than we have to have a good meal.
2: I think the there. there is it's hard to talk to somebody that's... Uh
1: that seems to be Calvin's explanation here as well. In other words, God is taking account, into account our weakness, and so therefore... But notice he's going to have us hallowing God's name and praying for his kingdom first, even with an empty stomach. So we'll give God you know, the top priority no matter what's going on with your stomach. Shall we move on before I get into trouble? All right. This helpful effect of the petition is uh, on our own hearts. It teaches us to be humble with our portion, giving God the credit, and to learn that our total dependence is on him. Okay? So the bottom line is, if you're asking God for your daily bread, then God gets the glory when you get it. No matter how you get it, by the way, it does tend to humble you in terms of your success in your career. You know, your salary that you get by which you feed your stomach and all that, it's grace. It's given by God. And if you are fervently praying that God would meet your family needs and provide, you know, the the money for all that, then when it comes, you don't take credit for it arrogantly. You don't pridefully take credit when God was the one that gave it to you. Okay. All right, the petition teaches us that God may, may use uh, bread to sustain our lives, yet the true sustaining of our lives is his will. I already made that point. Even rich people with full larders and wine cellars must have God's grace to continue to live even for one moment. So it doesn't matter how much food you have in your larder and, and what's going on in your wine cellar. If God doesn't will that you live another second, you won't. And so bottom line is it's all, it all comes down to God's will. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. Daily teaches us to be satisfied with what's necessary to sustain life and free free us from hoarding and self-reliance. Why from hoarding? Well, just like the collection of the manna, just getting enough that day, daily bread, so it teaches us the discipline of going back day after day after day to God Uh, and also to rely on ourselves to say, I need from God every hour what I need to survive. Okay? Okay. Finally, this petition also teaches us that it is ultimately God's blessing on our labors and not our labors themselves that care for our needs. The fact that we ask that it be given us signifies it's a simple and free gift of God, however it may come to us, even when it would seem to have been obtained with our own skill and diligence and supplied by our own hands, for it is by his blessing alone that our labors truly prosper. The fifth petition, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. How do the fifth and sixth petition relate to each other? Forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one or evil. Uh, Calvin writes this with this and the following petition, Christ briefly embraces all that makes for the heavenly life uh, here on earth as the spiritual covenant that God has made for the salvation of his church. rests on these two members alone. Listen, I shall write my laws upon their hearts and I shall be merciful toward their iniquity. That's Jeremiah 31, 33. Those, by the way, are the two grand and glorious stipulations of the new covenant. Third being, I will be their God and they will be my people. So those are the three we see in Hebrews 8. We'll get to it eventually when I preach through Hebrews. But basically, these are the two great things that God gives us in the new covenant. Covenant. What are they? Guidance through his word and constant forgiveness of of our sins. These are the gifts of the new covenant. And these are the two petitions that we have here. Forgive us our debts and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. These are, this is life guidance is what they are. Okay. We have another 30 seconds. Let me look at the three pages and see if there's anything that jumps at me as wonderfully worth. <clears throat> well, Calvin talks about the difference between trials. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil, trials which come from God and temptations which come from the devil. What's the difference? Well, it, it just has to do with what each is trying to do. What is God trying to do by bringing trials into your life? What is Satan trying to do by bringing temptations into your life? And frankly, the thing could be the exact same thing itself. Satan working a temptation, God calling it a trial, right? God never pulls you toward evil, but he does test you and try you. Satan, however, is pulling you toward evil to rebel. That's the intrinsic difference. That was a good insight. I thought Calvin was helpful to me on that. And he does a, a nice paragraph on amen. If you ever wonder what amen meant, he does a good <laughs> job on that. All right, let's close in prayer. By the way, next week, we're going to begin a Bible study in John's gospel. So we're looking forward to that. And uh, um, I, I like the discussion format. So come, having read the whole gospel of John, ready to discuss it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we'll probably begin with the first uh, first section, verse uh, 18 verses. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this uh, this evening, this time to study the Lord's Prayer. I pray that the result of this study tonight would be better prayer on our part, more spirit-filled prayer, more passionate prayer, more, more frequent prayer, longer prayers. Uh, I pray that for myself and for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for the things we've learned from John Calvin in this brief study as we just haven't even scratched the surface of the things that this uh, godly man, uh, his writings could teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.